This is our Old Testament reading for the morning. Please pay attention to the reading of God's holy word. Again, Isaiah 61 through 7. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exalt, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar and I will beautify my beautiful house. We can turn now to our main text for the day in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. If you have a pew Bible, that's on page 807. Again, Matthew 2, 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we confess that your law is perfect, that it revives the soul, that your testimonies are sure, that they make wise the simple, that your precepts are right, that they rejoice the heart, that your commandments are pure and enlightening the eyes. Your laws and your rules, O Lord, are true and righteous altogether. 
God, your word is to be more desired than gold, even much fine gold. It's sweeter to us than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. By your word, you warned us. And in keeping your word, God, there is great reward. Help us to seek after knowing you in your word. May your word this morning as it is preached and as we have just read it, be sweeter to us than the sweetest honey. And teach us, O Lord, and show us Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Over the past few weeks here at Livingstone, we have been working through the classic Christmas hymn, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, and we've been seeing how scripture speaks to the many biblical themes that we find throughout that hymn. And this week, we are on the last verse of Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, and then next week, we're going to dive right back into the book of Hebrews where we left off just a few weeks ago. The last verse of Come Thou Long Expected Jesus goes like this. Born thy people to deliver. Born a child and yet a king. Born to reign in us forever. Now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone. By thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. That last verse focuses on the kingship of Jesus, on the dominion and the rule of our Lord, even from his birth. And that's why this morning we are in Matthew chapter 2. There are two accounts of the birth of Jesus surrounding his birth that are particularly famous. The first is Luke chapter 2 with the shepherds and the angels. And then the second one is what we just read this morning, the story of the three wise men. If you drive around town during Christmas time, you're bound to see at least a few nativity scenes set up in people's front yards or in front of churches. And now I'm not going to comment on whether it's appropriate to have little statues of baby Jesus in front of churches. If you are interested in the application of the second commandment to images of God and things like that, come to our evening service in March and we'll be talking about that. But that's not my point here this morning. When you look at nativity scenes and they're set up, often what we see together at the manger is the shepherds and the wise men, often coming in riding camels and presenting their gifts. But that's not what we would have actually found if we had gone to see Jesus at the manger. We tend to only get one half of the nativity scene correct. We, it, is, it is true, it is right that the shepherds came to Jesus shortly after his birth, that they saw him and worshiped him, that the angels were singing. We tend to get at least the basic details of Luke 2 correct. But interestingly enough, as Christians, we tend to get the basic details of Matthew 2 and the wise men wrong. And we're going to be looking at a little bit of that this morning. Throughout the centuries, there's arisen this, this whole set series of, of lore surrounding Matthew 2 and the wise men. I don't know exactly why that is. Maybe it's just the, the mystic nature of these, of these wise men and magi coming from the east to visit Jesus. And so there's all these theories about, you know, what their names were and how many there were and all these other things that are going on. And I'm not saying that all of that lore surrounding these wise men is 
dangerous and destructive heresy or anything like that, but I do think it's a reminder to us that we need to read our Bibles more carefully. Sometimes we read details into the text that we assume are there when they actually aren't. And sometimes what this does is it distracts us from what is actually central in the text. We need to be just as clear about what the Bible doesn't say as we are about what it does say. So let's look at kind of the common view of what's going on with these wise men and what the text actually does say and doesn't say. So first, starting with the nativity scenes. As nice and cute as it is to have shepherds and wise men together, they would not have been together. The wise men did not arrive shortly after the birth of Jesus. Scholars disagree as exactly how old the baby Jesus was when the wise men arrived, but it's somewhere between two months old and two years old for reasons that we'll see in the text. So they didn't show up at the nativity scene with the shepherds. Second, what about the famous Christmas carol, We Three Kings of Orient Are? We're going to be singing that after this sermon. So what about that first line, We Three Kings of Orient Are? Well, Technically, the text does not tell us that there were three of them. It only tells us that there were more than one. It's the Greek word magoi, which is plural for magos, which is where we get magi from. And so it just means that there were multiples. There could have been two of them. There could have been three. There could have been 20. Just does not tell us. Second, what about the word kings? Well, the text nowhere calls them kings. They're called magi. They are astrologers. They're people that could have functioned as advisors or wise men, where we get that word, uh, to rulers from the country which they came. But they were not, at least the text doesn't tell us, they, they were not kings. Were they from the Orient? No. When we think of the word Orient, we often think East Asia. The text simply tells us that they were from the East. They were from somewhere East of Jerusalem. But beyond that, it doesn't tell us. Scholars have debated exactly where they might be from. A lot of people think that they were either from Babylonia or Persia um, for a number of different reasons. And if that's the case, then they were most likely from somewhere near modern-day Iraq or Iran and not from East Asia. So most... Uh, most biblical, biblical scholars, if we look at the text, would say that we do not see three kings from the Orient. And if that isn't fun enough, if we look at this text even more and you do research on this passage, you'll notice that many of the debates that scholars like to have about this surround questions that the text simply does not answer. You could spend all day trying to decide exactly where the Magi were from, exactly how many they were, what their job was. You could ask questions like, what was the star that they saw? Was it a comet? Was it the aligning of planets? Was it just some supernatural light that appeared in the sky? The text does not tell us. How did they know that that star or light that they saw meant that a king was born? We don't know. How did they follow the star? We're not sure. How little or how much of the Old Testament did they know about? We have no idea. The text just does not tell us. Curiosity is a really good thing, and it's something that I want to encourage in us. It's really good, the desire to study God's word, to study 
many things and to dive into all of the little obscure questions that we might have. However, we have to assume that Matthew didn't give us every single little detail about this story because he believed that we didn't need clarity on all of these little details. We should assume that if Matthew left clarity out of a specific part of a story, that he determined that it wasn't necessary for us to understand the main point of the text. And it's easy to get de derailed in our study of any passage simply by asking all of these peripheral questions about little curiosities and forgetting and ignoring the big idea that's right in front of our faces. In my time working with college ministry, I often taught a Bible study leaders training. Uh, and if you're familiar with how InterVarsity does Bible studies, we call it the inductive Bible study method. We spend time making observations of a text and then ask questions about those observations. Then we spend time answering those questions that we asked and we end up applying the text that we are studying. What's always really interesting is when you come to the time of opening it up to anybody asking questions that they have from the text, how often the questions that are asked have nothing to do with the main idea or main point of the text. When you're leading, or when I was leading Bible study leaders trainings, one of the biggest things you had to teach was to teach the student leaders how to determine which questions were actually essential for getting at what the text was really about and which questions were just curiosities and would derail the conversation. For instance, if you're studying Jesus feeding the 5,000, someone might ask, what type of fish were they? And we could say, we're not really sure. We could probably study it and narrow it down to four or five different species, but the text does not tell us what species of fish they were. And if we just spend all of our time studying that, we're going to miss what Jesus is doing. In our text today, it's really easy to get bogged down by all of the details, trying to figure out everything, and all of these things that Matthew apparently decided weren't necessary for us to understand. And it's easy to get distracted and miss the fact that this passage is an incredible account of a battle over allegiance, of a question about who the true king was, about a testimony to God's saving plan for all peoples. This passage is way more important and way more interesting than three kings riding camels coming up and giving gifts to a baby. As we look at this passage, I simply want to ask us two questions. And I want you to consider how you would answer those two questions honestly. Do you give your allegiance to King Jesus? And do you give your worship to King Jesus? So our two questions today, nice and simple. Do you give your allegiance to King Jesus? And do you give your worship to King Jesus? So let's dive into the passage today. You can look with me to verse one in Matthew two. We see that after the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, during the days of Herod the king, the wise men, we don't know how many, came to Jerusalem in search of the king of the Jews. In their studies of the stars, it had been revealed to them by God, and we don't know exactly how, that the king of the Jews had been born. So these wise men, these magi, go to Jerusalem. 
And that makes perfect sense. If you were a foreigner and you were told, revealed to you by God that the king of the Jews had been born, the natural place for you to go and search for this king would have been Jerusalem. It's like if I asked you, go find the governor of Wisconsin. A good place to start would probably be Madison, right? So they go to Jerusalem looking for this new king that had been born. And they go around town and they ask this question, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? It's probably a good assumption that if a new king had been born in the land, that people would know about it. That you could say, where's that new king that was born? And people probably responded, what? What new king? That probably was fairly confusing for the Magi. You don't know that a king was born in your own land? You don't know that your own new, new king was born? They're going around and they're asking questions. Now, if you look closely at the first three verses, you'll notice that there's one key word that is repeated in all three of these verses. Any guesses? Making you look at the text. All right, any guesses? King, thank you, awesome. These three verses right at the beginning, the key us in to what is really central in this passage. In the days of Herod, the king, now the readers would have known who Herod was, but he, he specifies Herod the king, the wise men arrived asking for the location of the newly born king of the Jews. So really, this is not a story about we three kings. This is a story about two kings, King Herod and King Jesus. Those are the important kings that are in this story that we're studying. So who is this Herod the king? If you know your New Testament, you're probably familiar with the name Herod. But the Herod that you're probably thinking about is Herod Antipas. He was the son of this Herod, the Herod in this passage. Herod Antipas was the one that was around during most of Jesus' ministry. He was the one that had John the Baptist beheaded. The one that we think most about this in the passage is his father, Herod the Great. And Herod the Great at this time was king of the Jews. He was the king over the region of Judea. He had been appointed so by the Romans. But Herod himself, interestingly, was not a Jew. His father was an Edomite. And if you know your Bibles, were the Edomites good or bad? Thank you, Zach. Boo. The Edomites were bad. There is an entire book of the Old Testament devoted to God's wrath and justice against the Edomites, okay? An entire book, Obadiah, is devoted to God's wrath against Edom. So Edomites were not great people. His father was an Edomite. His mother was most likely an Arab. He was not himself a fully full-blood Jew. And this probably partly explains why when the Wise men came to Jerusalem and they're asking, where is this new king of the Jews that he felt threatened? I'm the king of the Jews. I'm the king. But he knew that he wasn't rightfully, outside of what Rome had done, the king of the Jews. The big issue going on is that his power was threatened. He felt threatened by this little baby. So if you should remember one thing about Herod the Great, it's that he was so power hungry that it made him also almost paranoid or probably actually just simply paranoid. At one point, Herod's brother-in-law 
was becoming too popular in his view. So Herod had his brother-in-law assassinated. Multiple times during his reign, he had a plan put in place to have his wife murdered if he got killed to make sure that power would get allocated in the right way after his death. Later, he actually does have her put to death because he felt threatened. Later, he feared that two of his sons were a threat to his power, so he had them murdered. And that's just the beginning of it. If you do any in-depth study of Herod the Great, he was a wicked, wicked man. Caesar Augustus is quoted as saying, it is better to be Herod's pig than his son. Okay? So if the emperor of Rome says it is better to be Herod's pig, which is going to be slaughtered and eaten, it's better to be his pig than son. Not a good guy. And he did not know how to handle rivals to his power well. So in verse 3, when Herod heard rumors about the new king of the Jews, he was troubled, right, to say the least, and all Jerusalem was troubled with him. Jerusalem probably knew that if Herod was mad, that it meant trouble for them. And in this case, they were right, as we're going to see in just a little bit. So in his paranoia, Herod, in verse 4, assembles all the chief priests, all the scribes of the people, all the experts in the law. He doesn't just bring in a couple of people. He doesn't want one or two opinions. He brings them all in to find out where this king, where the Christ was to be born. And they all tell him, the answer is obvious, in Bethlehem of Judea. That is the city where the promised king would be born. They quote to him from Micah 5.2, showing that the promised ruler would come from Bethlehem. So then in verse 7, he summons the, the wise men. And he does two things. First, he asks them when the star appeared. So we already had a where. He knew where this child would be, but he also needed a when. He wanted to know how old the child was so that he could find this child. And that's going to obviously play into how he responds to all of this. And then second, he sends them to Bethlehem to find the child and then to come back and tell him where the child was. He didn't want to send a pile of soldiers with them. The wise men would probably have gotten suspicious about his intentions. So he secretively, he sends them away. All right, go find the child. I want to go worship him too. You know, just come back and tell me where he is, which of course is a wicked lie from a wicked man. Herod's intentions were not to worship the baby Jesus. His intentions were to have him killed. He wanted to get rid of the threat to his power. And although we see at the end of our text that Herod's plan was foiled, we do learn later in verses 16 through 18 that he went so far as to have every male in the region, two years old and younger, killed. And that's how we know that Jesus was probably somewhere under the age of two, right? Because he had found out when the star had come, and then he says, two years old and younger, going to be put to death. This is perhaps the most wicked, heinous, and evil act of Herod's long and wicked and tyrannical rule. We should read this, and we should see, we should be horrified by this, right? We should read verses 16 through 18 and say, what kind of king makes a pronouncement that all children two years old and younger that are males need to be put to death just to preserve his own rule, to 
preserve his own kingship. It should horrify us, right? And I'm not going to stay on this long, but are we horrified by the children, by the infants that are killed in our society, in our culture, in the United States? If statistics bear out and are true, then during the time that I'm preaching this sermon, 50 unborn children will be killed. 50. In the 30 minutes, 35 minutes it takes me to preach this sermon. We're horrified by what Herod did by killing 50, 100 two-year-old and younger children in the area of Jerusalem. We need to be horrified by what goes on. And I don't have time right now to talk about what we should do and how we can work to end abortion in our country, but there are things we can do. And I do encourage you to, to research, go online, find out what you can do. Talk with me after the service. I have some resources, things I can point you to. This is something we should take very seriously. It's something that the Bible takes very, very seriously. The lives of infants are very important to our God. So Herod was a wicked man. He was evil. And he was willing to preserve his kingship at all costs. Killing infants, killing family members, his son, his wives, his wife, his sons. And it's easy for us to critique Herod, right? To say he is a wicked man. But do we allow this passage to pierce into our hearts? Do we let this passage show us and open up the sin that lies within us? Do we see how we have misplaced allegiances? Do we give our allegiance to Christ the King or are we intent on preserving our own little kingdoms, preserving our autonomy over our own lives, preserving our authority. We want to be our own kings. We want to have our own kingdoms. And how dare this other ruler, this other authority come in and say that he is the rightful king and he is the rightful authority. Herod did not want Jesus to rule over him. Do we want Jesus to rule over us? Do we want him to be our king? There's only one king in this passage. I said that this is a story of two kings, but there's only one true king in this passage, and he is nothing like Herod. Nothing like Herod. Look at verse six. Look at the prophecy quoted about Jesus. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Herod was the dictionary definition of a tyrannical, wicked king, but Jesus is completely different. He's completely different. He is a shepherd king. He is a ruler who had come who would shepherd the people of God. A shepherd cares for his sheep. A shepherd feeds his sheep. He protects his sheep. He's not a king who fearfully kills the innocent to maintain his rule. Jesus is an innocent king who willingly lays down his life to preserve the life of his subjects and to give them eternal life. Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Think about that contrast. Herod willing to kill to preserve his rule and Jesus willing to die to save his subjects. What a contrast between two kings. Jesus is a different kind of king. He is a king who is worthy of our allegiance. So let's give our allegiance to him. 
Our second question, do you give your worship to Jesus? Do you give your worship to Jesus? Let's look at verse 9 through the end of the passage now. In verse 9, the Magi, they go out from Herod to go to Bethlehem. And the star that they had seen, it says that it, it rose and guided them to the place that the child was saying. Now, I love in verse 10 that we learn something here about the heart of these magi. It says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Herod was terrified at the coming of this king. These magi, just at the sight of the star that would lead them to the baby, just seeing that star, they rejoiced. And they didn't just rejoice. This is about the biggest way that Matthew could have communicated rejoicing. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. One commentator said, deliriously happy may be an overstatement, but it was something like that. Deliriously happy when they saw that star. Oh, to be that excited to see Jesus, to be that excited from our hearts to worship Jesus as our king, like these magi. And then worship is exactly what they do. If you look at verse 11, they went into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures. They offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. What we have in this passage is something very similar to what we see in 1 Kings chapter 10 when the queen of Sheba visited Solomon the king, and she brought him great gifts. This is a foreign delegation who is coming to see a new king, to bring gifts to this new king. And some throughout church history have assigned specific meanings to each of these gifts. Uh, this started, it goes all the way back at least to Origen, an early church theologian and pastor. According to the tradition, gold was for a king, which makes sense. Frankincense, which was used for incense in worship, often throughout scripture, was for Jesus as a god, one that was to be worshipped. And then myrrh, which later in the Gospels, in two instances, is specifically tied to Jesus' death. It was offered to Jesus with, mixed with wine on the cross, and then it was used in Jesus' burial that myrrh signifies Jesus as a mortal, one who would come and who would die. Now, to be completely technically correct, each of these three gifts in scripture has multiple uses. They're not, it's not just so straightforward that gold must mean king, frankincense must mean God, and myrrh must mean death. But actually, generally, if you look at how they're used, there is a tendency towards these three things. I think this does teach us something good about Jesus. And even if those three gifts don't necessarily themselves teach us that Jesus was king and God and one who would come and die, this text itself already teaches us all three of those things. That Jesus was the true king of the Jews. That Jesus was God because he was worshipped. God should be worshipped. Jesus is the right, uh, right recipient of true worship because he was God. And we see that Jesus was opposed. People would try to kill him. This foreshadows Jesus' own death later in the Gospel of Matthew. So we learn about the identity of Jesus in this passage. He was a king, he was God, and he was one who would come and would die. 
But the biggest emphasis here, I think the, the major emphasis is on Jesus as a king. And that these magi came to worship him, to pay homage to him as a king. And we see in our last verse, when they go to depart, that God warns them in a dream not to go back to Herod. So apparently they had been fooled by Herod's deception, and they would have gone back to Herod if God hadn't revealed to them what Herod was up to and told them, no, you need to go back by another way, which is what they do. So what we see at the very beginning and at the very end of this passage that these magi were guided by God. They were guided by God's revelation from the beginning of their search all the way to the end of it. And of all people in this passage, look at who it is that recognizes Jesus for who he is and responds as they should. This is a pattern you see all throughout the Gospels. It's the last people you would expect that are the people that recognize Jesus for who he is. Was it the priests? No. The experts in the law? No. How about the inhabitants of Jerusalem? Nope. The king of Judea? No. It's, it's a band of unnamed Gentile pagan astrologers. They're the ones. They're the ones who show up. They're the ones who go to worship Jesus as king. And they worship Jesus as king because of God's revelation. It wasn't just because they were wise men, right? That they found out about Jesus and all these things just merely by their own intellect, by their own wisdom. It is clear that God has done something very special in his revelation to them. Something that was available for others to see, but that other people didn't have eyes to see the Magi were able to understand what God was revealing to them because of his work in them. So for us to see Jesus too, for us to seek and find our king, it's because God must have done some revelatory work in us. It's not because we're wise. It's not because we're more simply religious or anything. It's because of God's gracious revelation to people, even to people that would be unexpected, pagan astrologers who God reveals the birth of Jesus. And one of the great wonders of this story then is that these magi from a distant land come to worship specifically the king of the Jews. They come to worship the king of the Jews. But what they found was a baby who could be their king too. A baby that could be the king of Gentile astrologers from Iran or Iraq. They found a king who accepted their gifts, accepted their worship. Jesus is not just the king of the Jews. This text shows us that Jesus is the king of all peoples. He's the shepherd of all who call upon him in faith, whether Jew or Gentile, from every tribe and tongue and nation. Jesus is the true king of the world. There's a bunch of lore surrounding these wise men. There's so many myths, so many tales. But what's the single most important thing about these magi? The single most important detail is that they came to worship Jesus. And I love how William Hendrickson, my favorite New Testament commentator, love how he describes this. Listen to what he says. We are not given a detailed description of the star. We're not told how the magi connected this star with the birth. We're not told how many magi there were, how they dressed, how they died, or where they were buried. 
That and much more is purposefully left in the shade in order that against this dark background, the light may shine forth all the more brilliantly. These wise men, whoever they were, wherever they came from, came to worship him. That is the detail that should stick out about these magi. That is what stands out to us. They came to worship the king. Do you give your worship to King Jesus? Is Jesus foremost in your mind? Is he foremost in your heart? Or are there other loves in your life that seek to dethrone him? By the power of the spirit, let us fight against the temptations to idolatry, the temptations to worship other things as our true kings, to worship ourselves as our own autonomous little rulers. And let us worship Jesus Christ, the newborn king, and now our reigning king. Let's only worship him. Because only worship of him will truly cause our hearts to rejoice exceedingly with great joy, like the Magi. Jesus is our king. So let us give him our allegiance and let us give him our worship. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus Christ, you were born thy people to deliver. You were born a child and yet a king. You were born to reign in us forever. And now, oh Lord, thy gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone. Help us to fight by the power of your spirit against all other allegiances and all other loves which rule our hearts, that we may be ruled by you and you alone. And by thine all-sufficient merit, not our merit, not our works, not our wisdom, by thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. Oh Lord, we long to see you face to face, like the Magi saw you face to face. May we seek after you with all of our strength, knowing that one day we will behold you on your glorious throne. Amen.